0: It's our privilege this morning to once again turn to the Word of God and for those of you that were here last week you remember that we started a series on the incarnation and last week we looked at incarnation the risk and this morning I want to look at incarnation the revealing and I'd like to start by reading a tweet that a friend of mine wrote um, yesterday and he said this God became a babe in arms Because he wanted to be held by us, so we would be willing to be held by him. Ingenious relational move. It's a really important point, that God was willing to become a babe to be held by a person, to be held by us, metaphorically, in order that we might be willing to be held by him. Just a tremendous thought. And the, again, the incarnation is, a, or Bethlehem is really an inexhaustible theme. And you know, this morning, as we talk about the incarnation, the revealing, part of my thought here is that it's very easy for us to miss one, misunderstand each other. Anybody ever have that happen? Where you're talking to somebody and you say something and you're saying it's so clear. What are you nodding about, dear? My wife's just like, she's like so into that, yes. So, uh, I was really thinking of Matt and Giselle, but, um, you know, we think we're communicating so clearly and just tension sometimes builds because you're miscommunicating. And so I want to give an illustration of that. It has to do with um, Bernard Levin, who was a British journalist for many years, uh, very well-known. He passed away a number of years ago. But when he was a child, he was at a um, kind of a private school. And one day there was a celebrity that came to the school to visit. And there was a whole congregation. And, and Levin was very precocious as a child, very bright. And so the headmaster called him up front to meet the celebrity. And the celebrity, wanting to be nice, asked the question, what did you have for breakfast? And so Levin responded matzo at which point the celebrity looked like you do excuse me and um, and so the celebrity asked again what did you have for breakfast and he said matzo then the headmaster asked a third time and you could tell that there was palpable tension in the room and he was getting very nervous at this point in time and so, again, the headmaster was like, what did you have for breakfast? And he goes, matzah And then, finally, the headmaster simply said, why don't you go sit down? And what was the problem? What is matzo brai, by the way? What is it? Who knows, right? Nobody, none of you know, <laughs> except for my mother, who is in the back. She knows. And so matzo, matzo is a very typical Jewish dish where you take matzah and egg, and you mix it and bake it together and put cinnamon in it. And for him, it was totally plain what he was saying. But he was completely misunderstood. Because the person listening didn't know the word, didn't have any comprehension about what that was. You guys can Google this later, okay? I know that you want to find the recipe, but do it after church. Um, but it's just an illustration of how something very simple can communicate Something very different. And so there's another word that I'd like to talk about this morning with you that you might have a mental picture of, but somebody else may have a very different picture of, and that's the word God. If we were to communicate about God or talk to people about God, our understandings, our perceptions of what that word means can be very different. And individuals, as we begin to talk to them about God, about faith, about what, who God is or what God has done, if we have a misunderstanding or if we have a perception of what God is and we're trying to communicate something very different, there can be a breakdown in communication. So um, just a couple of weeks ago on the December 15th, this Dr. Hawkins um, Uh, Larissa Hawkins, who teaches at Wheaton University, Wheaton College in in the Midwest, she decided that she was going to wear a hajib to show solidarity with Muslims. That's the headscarf that she's wearing. She's not a Muslim, she's a Christian. But she made a statement on her Facebook page. She said that Muslims, like me, a Christian, she's the Christian, are people of the book. As Pope Francis stated last week, we worship the same God. So she put this on her Facebook post, her page, and she has been suspended from her University of Wheaton, Wheaton College. She's been uh, on temporary leave there. uh, Yeah. Why, yeah? Because there's a question there, right? Do we worship the same God? Now, Let's leave that aside just for a moment, or for today at least. Um, and, but ask the question about our concepts of God. Certainly there is a huge theological difference between the God of the New Testament, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Muslim God. Very different conception. Um, but of course, of course uh, the Pope said that we worship the same God the real question is what is who is the God that we worship do we even here this morning worship the same God or are our perceptions of God so vastly different that even though we're here worshiping together and we think we're worshiping the same God maybe our concepts of God are very different. And another time, we'll explore the issue with the Muslims. But let me move on to another quotation here. This is from Brad Pitt. And he grew up as a Southern Baptist. And he said, I don't understand the idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best, and then I'll give you eternal happiness. So this is Brad Pitt's concept of God. That God is some kind of a um, cosmic egotist. I can't see God operating from ego, so it made no sense to me. Now, his perception of God is what? Is that all God wants is for you to acknowledge him as if God's ego is on the line. Now, if we're talking to somebody and we're trying to communicate with somebody and we're talking about God, whether it's a, a Muslim concept or a, a any kind of concept, whatever concept of God, somebody that doesn't believe in God, it would be really important to be talking about the same thing, don't you think? To be talking about, or at least clarifying, what we mean when we say we believe in God. And that is really the purpose of the incarnation. So that all the confusion about God that has come through our human situation and misunderstandings and wrong philosophies and and different perspectives, all that confusion can be exposed or blown away when we look at the incarnation. Because the incarnation is trying to tell us who God is and what God is like. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1, where we read earlier, John chapter 1 in verse... Verses 1 through 3. And So John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It might be perplexing to us. We're going to come back and look at it in a little bit more detail. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. John opens his gospel with a prologue of 18 verses. John 1, verse 1 to verse 18 is the introduction to the entire gospel of John. And it's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very different completely. Uh, John starts from a very different perspective, but he he starts, he takes us back in time to a place that John calls the beginning. He describes this mysterious at this point in time at least word and then he tells us that this word has brought everything into existence as we move down through the prologue we find out uh, in a moment that this word actually becomes flesh and that the word later in the gospel of John is described as the person that we would call Jesus Christ so let's look at this in in a little bit Um, in detail so in the beginning and so that just kind of raises a question as to when that is when we say in the beginning what picture comes to mind creation so of course um, the very first book of the english bible is genesis and how does it start in the beginning in the beginning god created the heaven and earth and then the chapter unfolds with god speaking everything into existence the Hebrew title for the book of Genesis is Bereshit, which means in the beginning. In the beginning. And so John, as he opens his gospel, you know, he's taking us back to the very foundation of creation. But John does something in his gospel several places. There are times when John says one thing and you're not exactly sure if he means this or that. Uh, let me give you an example in John chapter 13, as Jesus and his disciples are eating. um, It's at the Last Supper. Let's turn there with me real quickly. John chapter 13. Yes, in verse 30. John chapter 13 in verse 30. At that last Passover meal when Jesus was was with his disciples, um, Jesus describes that someone is going to betray him. And Jesus says, it's the one with whom I dip in the the bread on the table and then he gives it to Judas and Judas goes out and in John 13 in verse 30 it says after receiving the morsel he that's Judas went out immediately and what it was night what does John mean by that it was night well it was night but was there something else happening for Judas as he walked out into that darkness? It was night in his soul. It was darkness. And John does this all throughout his gospel where he says something and there's a double meaning to it. We find it all throughout the gospels, the gospel of John. And so John chapter 1 opens in the beginning. What do we think of? Well, we think of creation, of course. But can we think beyond creation? I mean, beyond the creation of this world, in the beginning of God creating this world? In the beginning, actually, we could understand this phrase simply to mean in beginning, whenever that is. Go back in time, go back in time, go back in time, go back in time. Keep going back in time until you're finally going to get to what John calls the beginning. In the beginning beginning john wants to make a very important point here for us um, that you know we could call this the beginning of everything the beginning of the universe the beginning of history the root of, uni- of the universe let's go back to john chapter one um, in the beginning the next phrase tells us what was the word so let me try to illustrate this if i can when you came into the sanctuary this morning, um, whenever you came in here, certain things were already in the sanctuary. Is that correct? So, for example, the ornaments were here, the pulpit was here, the platform, things were here, the beautiful poinsettias were here. When you arrived, things were already here before you. John's telling us, in the beginning, whenever that is, if you could get there, Who's already there? The Word. John's not saying, in the beginning, the Word came to be. He's not saying, in the beginning, the Word started its existence. He's saying, in the beginning, what? Was the Word. As far back in time as you go, however that is, and keep going so that you get to the beginning, the Word is already there in the beginning was the word now it's an interesting thought this expression uh, was the word and um, and if we think through through that idea of word in scripture it's really well it's a very powerful picture throughout all the Hebrew scriptures for example in Psalm 33 in verse 6 it says by the word of the Lord the heavens were made Um, Isaiah 55 in verse 10, you know, God says that the word that he speaks is going to bring things into existence. Isaiah 55 in verse 10, let's turn there. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth, but make it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, verse 11, so will my word be which goes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So the word throughout scripture, going back to creation, going to the Psalms, going to the book of Isaiah, the word is not simply a What do I want to say there? Not simply passive, but the Word has ability to bring things into existence. The Word is powerful. The Word is action. The Word is not simply thought, but it's thought in action. In the beginning was the Word. It's interesting that there's um, a, a collection of Jewish commentaries on different parts of Scripture and they're called targums, and one of them is a description on Exodus chapter 19, where Moses comes to the Lord. But in, in this particular commentary, it doesn't say "Exodus, Moses, excuse me. It doesn't say "Moses comes to the Lord." it says, "Moses came to the Word." So there's this whole concept that the word is the one that brings things into existence. That's what John's trying to tell us in the beginning. As far back in time as you go, who's already there? The Word. But then, John says, back in John chapter 1, the next little phrase. And the Word, what? Was with God. Now, this is interesting here. Um, The word that's translated with in, in our English Bibles is a preposition. That uh, means the preposition is actually pros, and it means to have movement toward. In fact, it's only trad- translated with here. Every other place it's translated, it indicates some kind of movement toward. In other words, what John is trying to tell us is, in the beginning, whenever you get there, the word ex- already exists. The word was there, but the word is not in isolation. The word is in relation to who? God. Now that's a really important concept for us. For whenever this beginning is, God himself is not in isolation. God is in relationship. God is in fellowship. The word is in movement toward relationship with God. And that's why relationships are the most important things for human beings you know again we talked about this briefly last week if if it were true that we are simply reorganized matter operating to natural forces if that were true why would relationships be so important to us but if it's true that we're created in the image of a relational being then it makes sense that relationships are the most important to us in the beginning whenever that is the word is there the active word But the word isn't alone. The word is in relation with God. And then lastly, the last phrase here is what? And the word was God. In other words, all that God is, all that deity is, omniscient, omnipotent, um, all kind, all benevolent, love, everything that the God is, so is the word. And then John amazes us. We go down to verse... 14 in verse 14 john 1 verse 14 and it says and the word did what Yeah. and the word became something he was not in verse 1 in the beginning was the word the word was there in existence before all things but in verse 14 The word becomes something he is not naturally. He becomes what? Flesh. It's interesting. John doesn't say he became a man or became a human. He uses that expression, you know. He became flesh. God come carne. God in flesh. The word becomes flesh. And let's continue reading here. Verse 14, and he dwelt among us, and we, what? We beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And when John says we beheld, of course we behold that by faith, but John's talking about himself, and what he's saying is that we saw this glory manifested. And where did we see it manifested? In the life of Jesus Christ let's look at verse 18 let me stress this verse 18 for no man has seen God at any time the only begotten God this is the new American Standard who is in the bosom of the Father he has Explained him. That last part of verse 18, different translations might read that differently. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The key point of verse 18 is this that when the Word becomes flesh, the purpose for that is so that you and I could have a very clear picture about what God is like. So Brad Pitt's question, or Dr. Hawkins' question, or Dr. Richard Hawkins' question, or anybody's misunderstanding about what God is like, is to be cleared up in the incarnation. And that's a vital point for us. Because things happen in this world and we begin to think, you know, that doesn't really seem like God. So to think back to Brad Pitt's point, it really would seem ungodlike to think of God as being an egotist and that it's simply if, if you love him, you know, for his own ego, well, then you get to be with him forever. Is that the way Jesus displayed his life here on earth? That's not what we see in the Gospels at all. Or a God that might be vindictive or a God that might be separate from human suffering, or a God that might be judgmental. Not that there isn't a judgment, but that God is not judgmental. But all those misunderstandings of God are blown away, just like a morning mist or the rain that's finally gone, praise the Lord. Um, When the sun comes out, all of that goes away when we begin to see God in the person of Jesus Christ. And the question is, do we really understand what he's like? The incarnation, in addition to being a great risk, is the place where God gets to reveal himself the clearest. And what do we see in that life? Well, we see Jesus blessing little children, as we read earlier. We see uh, Jesus healing people. We see Jesus forgiving people, caught in all manner of different sins. We see uh, Jesus denouncing hypocrisy. We see Jesus denouncing self-righteousness. But we also see Jesus continually doing everything he can to bring people closer to him. That is what God is like. That is the God that we should be worshiping. And to be quite frankly, to be quite frank, whoever, anybody in the world has a picture of God as a God that is longing to redeem and to save them, whether they have a full New Testament theological picture, I would say we're worshiping the same God if we're worshiping a God that's truly love. But you know, if we're not really worshiping a God that's truly love, our Doctrine might be right, but we might not be worshiping the right God. So let's turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Again, all throughout the Gospel of John, um, Jesus tells us that what he does, he does to reveal the Father to us, you know, continually, continually. Um, John chapter 5, he says, I see my father working and I'm working as well. You think about that. He heals on the Sabbath. And what's his justification for healing on the Sabbath? Well, that's what my father does. What's his justification for hanging out with the riffraff? Well, that's what my father's like. Not riffraff, but hanging out with people. You know, everything Jesus did, well, this is what I see God doing. This is who God is. That's why I live this way. What about us? How do we react to other people? Do we get our perception of our, um, how we should interact with individuals based on them or based on what we see our Father doing? That needs to be the clear directive for us. We need to be revealing God the way Christ revealed God. But we need to be seeing God the way God is revealed in Christ. John chapter 17, a couple of passages here starting in verse uh, 1. Again, remember in John 1:18, it says, We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John said that we looked at the life of Jesus. That's what we see. John 17, starting in verse 1. John spoke these things. And, excuse me, Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. The hour of what? What hour has come? His sacrifice, his crucifixion, his Garden of Gethsemane experience, his exchange of his life for our life. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life. That they may what? They may know you. That's the reason I came into the world, Jesus is saying. I came into the world so that people can know you and people don't know you. People are confused. People are arguing, people fight, people disagree, people reject God because they do not what? They do not know him. But I have come into the world that people may know you. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then down toward the end of the chapter, in verse 25, it says, O righteous Father... Although the world has not known you. The world has a wrong picture of God. It's been That wrong picture has been promoted by individuals that misrepresent God. It's been promoted by wrong philosophy. It's been promoted by evil. Righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these, my disciples, have known that you sent me. Verse 26. And I have made... What? Your name known to them. I have made your name, your character. I have made known to them who you are. I have been explaining who you are my entire life, Jesus is saying. And we'll make it known so that, and then here's the purpose. And what's the purpose? So that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them purpose of the incarnation is to reveal to us what God really is like and here Jesus says in his prayer right before he goes into the garden of Gethsemane and right before he goes to the cross I am making known who you are so let's think about that for a moment again we know what happens after this shortly after this Jesus goes to the garden of Gethsemane he prays and there in the garden of Gethsemane he begins to wrestle begins to wrestle he's praying he's anguishing And what is the major question? Should I really go through with this? Should I really become sin for humanity? Is it really worth it? And as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, that was the question that was pressing on his mind. And Satan was there saying, you know, if you go through with this, you are going to be part of my kingdom forever. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, without having felt any nails yet, without being put to death on on the cross yet, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is wrestling with the question, is humanity worth saving? Are you? Uh, Well, we are. We are worth saving. But isn't that amazing? That in the incarnation, Christ is revealing what God is like. And what Christ reveals to us is that God is the one that is completely other-centered. Not a thread of egotism in God. God is the one that is totally other-centered. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane and in the cross... God in human flesh, the word become flesh, is making a decision. I am willing to risk losing everything so that you all could be saved. Or as my friend tweeted, he became a babe so that he could be held, so that he could end up holding us. And in the incarnation, that's what we see. This tremendous battle taking place. Who's God? What's God like? All sorts of different wrong ideas about what God's like. But the clearest picture is in Jesus Christ. And there we see the key point is God is other-centered. God wants to be with you for eternity. And he's willing to go to any extent... To be with you for eternity. You know, it's amazing how lukewarm and legalistic we become when the truth of the gospel is so mind blowing, and, and that somehow it's got to permeate into our entire being to free us from just being so casual Christians. Because here's the God of the universe, the one that created everything, brought everything into existence, knows everything, sees everything, can do everything, and is willing to give it up at all just to spend eternity with you. There is nothing more powerful as a motive than that. Forget the streets of gold. Just imagine looking into the eyes of the one that loves you enough that would be willing to sacrifice everything. A quotation, a couple of quotations I'd like to share with you. Um, This is from the book, Desire of Ages, a wonderful book on the life of Christ. Again, if anybody would like a copy and don't have one, let me know. But it says, In the light from Calvary, it will be seen that the law of self renouncing love is the law of life for earth and heaven. Other-centeredness, totally, completely, continually, that the love which seeks not her own has its source in the heart of God. And that's what we see in the incarnation. And that in the meek and lowly one is manifested the character of him who dwells in light which no man can approach unto. No man has seen God at any time. You know, when, when Moses was there, he was put in the rock and he just only saw his back parts uh, back in the book of Exodus. But we do see God in Jesus Christ. But what do we really see? We see the character of him who dwells in light, which is unapproachable, character which is other centered, giving continually, all the time. This is from a Bible commentary, seven Bible commentary, seventh day Adventist Bible commentary, page 924. It says this, listen to this carefully. The righteous one, that would be Jesus, must suffer condemnation and wrath of God not in vindictiveness, that's really important, isn't it? Not in what? Not in vindictiveness for the heart of God yearned with the greatest sorrow when His Son, the guiltless, was suffering the penalty of sin. Notice this last sentence. This, what's that word? Sundering. What does sundering mean? A separation, a tearing apart. This tearing apart of the divine powers will never again occur throughout eternal ages. What's happening when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's on the cross, when he's becoming sin for the human race? There's some kind of tearing apart of the divine powers as Christ is giving up everything for you. He's revealing to you that he really loves you. We have a hard time believing it. We look at the wrong places. We look at ourselves. We look at others. We listen to what other people say. We make judgments. We need to look where God is revealed, and that is in the life of Jesus Christ. The divine powers were sundered in Gethsemane and at Calvary. Why? Just for the chance of being with you forever. John says in the, his, one of his first letters, first epistle of John, Behold what manner of love that we might be called the sons and daughters of God. Behold what manner of love that God became flesh. The word, self-existent, eternal, being from eternity, being all that God is, became flesh so that you and I could really see what God is like. May God help us to worship him as he really is, the self-giving one. Let's turn to our closing hymn. Father in heaven, I pray that the incredible love you have for each one of us would truly be the motivating force for us to serve you. That that love would continue to draw us, would would create contrition in our hearts, would create a desire to be one with you. Father, I pray that your spirit would continue to draw our thoughts heavenward, that we might truly feast on your great love. In Jesus' name.